0: if this is your first time gathering with us, I'd say, man, that's some heavy stuff. And it is because we're, we're jumping into the story. Um, this gospel account which is, gospel means good news. and So this is the good news of the life that Jesus lived. And we're in a point of Jesus' life where he's actually preparing for his death. And he knows that that's happening. He's He's been prepared for this for a long time. It was actually the plan of God since the very beginning that, that God would give of Himself for a people who needed a Savior and He would be that Savior. And so Jesus, being part of the, the, the Trinity, part of the triune God, has known that this plan was coming. And actually we see some of that in our passage today. We see that this plan of God is very Intentional. Even to some of the minute details that we think God doesn't care about, He cares about the details of our life. He cares about the plan that He has put into place that He's executing. And so we're seeing that. Last week, we had this beautiful picture of the woman who, who pours out her worship upon Jesus and does it in a radical way that, that people are shocked by, people actually condemn, people say that's wrong, and Jesus actually goes and He says, No, you're wrong. She's done a beautiful thing for me. She's poured out her love and her worship upon me. And they've they've tried to justify it with their own self-righteousness. And Jesus calls them out on that and says, listen, you're always going to have the poor. You're not always going to have me. Worship me while I'm here. And so we saw that beautiful picture. And we we even saw how Judas has has planned with the religious uh, people of the day to actually plot and kill Jesus. And so we, we looked at kind of two ideas of, of response to Jesus. One is this beautiful adoration and worship, and one is actually where we're going to rest today also as we look at the portrayal of Jesus. You need to know that um, these disciples that are gathering, that are with Jesus, have been following, most of them have been following him for quite some time, years. And in our... In our society, years is a really long time. Like for them, it wasn't quite as long as it is for us, but we can't do things for five minutes sometimes. Much less three years to be part of a of a group that would follow and go after Jesus. And so I just I think that to to understand what's going on here, to understand the intimacy that's being shared by the disciples with Jesus, you need to be able to kind of go back and, and think, wow. Judas and James and John and Peter and All of the disciples had been with Jesus and they knew Jesus and they heard Jesus and they watched what he did. And yet what we see is that God's plan was uh, fulfilled in the betrayal that that Judas would exact upon Jesus. And, And so we look at that and we're like, how does that reconcile with the plan of God that he would use bad things for his purposes? But we also know that sin... Because of the fall runs really deep. Even as we begin to to uncover some of the outer sins, we we start to realize that even some of the good things that we do that people would look at and say, that's good, man, you're a good person, is actually being done from sinful, prideful, arrogant ways. And so we know that our sin runs deep. And we see this sin run deep in Judas. Um, So today I, I just pray that God would open our eyes, that we would see... That what the Passover means a little bit. We'll, we'll dive in some more next week as they share this Passover meal uh, more. But I want you to see, like the Passover is the plan of God to redeem and rescue a people. And Jesus is sharing that meal with his disciples who are a people in need of redemption and rescue. And Jesus is the Passover lamb. And we're going to see that Jesus cares about the plan. He cares about the details. He tells them exactly what they're going to go find in preparation for this meal. And then they go and they see it. And finally, we're going to see that, that Jesus is betrayed. Like, like he's part of the disciples, but it's not like Robin Hood and the Merry Men where, the, where they're this group thing. No, Jesus is alone, the Lamb of God who is slain. And yes, the disciples are there, but eventually they all leave him. And only one is perfect. And only one walks perfect righteousness for an unrighteous people, and that's Jesus. So I pray that we would see Him today, and that as we see Him, we would be changed. We'd realize the beauty of our Savior, and we would seek to worship Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. God, we need You. God, we thank You for the gift of Your Word, and that all of it, Lord, from the beginning of creation to the end in Revelation, where we see the magnitude of the glory of God, Lord, all of it is is pointing to you. It's a story that is about you. We are not the central figure in it, and yet you've invited us into that story. God, thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we can come just as we are this morning with an imperfect faith, with an unfinished faith, but you are faithful to your promise and you're working it in us. Lord, for your glory, and I pray that we would step into everything that you have for us today. God, give us ears to hear. God, I pray that as Chris prayed, that you would put words in our mouths, Lord, particularly this morning in mine, Lord, that your words would be my words and that you would be glorified. May we see you today, Jesus. That's the one thing we need. That's the one thing I ask. We would dwell with you, that we would see you, that we would behold your beauty. Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts. May we believe, may we repent, may we run to you today, and then may we run out of here with the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we look um, in the passage. We're just going to start in verse 12. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You see, the, the people of God, the Jewish people, had celebrated the Passover feast forever. They had, since, be, since they were a people, they celebrated. Because the Passover was where they became a people. Where they became a people that were rescued, that received grace, that were freed from bondage and slavery. So we need to understand a little bit about that. This, we, we think that you have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. And somehow they're two different things. But the reality is that they, they're a continuation of the same faithfulness of our God from generation to generation. And so as we look back at the Passover, what are the people of God celebrating? They're celebrating the faithfulness of their God. This Passover is the largest of the Jewish festivals and is celebrated every year to remember the faithfulness of Yahweh. It celebrates the particular rescue of Israel, the people of God out of slavery and oppression from Egypt. Listen, if you know anything about the story, then you know that... Um, Even last week, we talked a little bit about uh, Joseph, right? And the establishing of of Joseph in Egypt and how his brothers had tried to sell him into slavery, and they did sell him into slavery. Like, they didn't try, they did. It was a a bad story. And yet, we also see at the end of that story how God is using what they meant for evil, for his glory and his good, to rescue a people. And so Joseph was established, and and then the, the Israelites came, and they were a blessing to Egypt. But over time, Egypt... Enslaved and um, brought down the people of Israel, and they gathered them in and used them as slaves and and manipulated them. And so that's where we pick up the story of the Passover you have Pharaoh, who is the ruler of Egypt, and you have Moses, the one that God had called to lead his people out of Egypt, to free them, to set them free from the bondage of slavery. And so You have God calling Moses and giving him the authority to speak for him. And he goes to Pharaoh and he tells him, listen, you need to let let God's people go. And God knows that um, Pharaoh's not going to listen to just words, and so he gives signs, and many of you might know the ten plagues that happen. And so these plagues happen, and they they show the power and might of God to rescue a people, but Pharaoh continues to say, no, I'm not going to let those people go. So we pick up in Exodus 12. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. And we see that this last plague that's being brought upon the people of Israel, or, 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 upon the Egyptians to rescue the people of Israel. Ephesians, or, uh, Exodus 12, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head and its legs and its inner parts. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. This is the feast that the disciples are going into Jerusalem to prepare for Jesus to, to gather and remember and celebrate the faithfulness of their God. I think that sometimes we, we forget the, the, that God was faithful, but He also called a faithful people to Himself. Right? Because the, the Israelites could have heard this commandment and done nothing. Or they hear the commandment that God is going to rescue and they, by faith, take hold of it, take the lambs. Sacrifice the lamb. Take its blood and actually put it over the doorposts of the house. Like that's an active obedience that's required to show their faith in a faithful God. And so that's what then the Israelite people would do every year. They would, by faith, take hold of the rescue that they have in God. That God had rescued them as a people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Jesus, knowing that that's true, he's celebrating the faithfulness of God. Like the Son of God is celebrating the faithfulness of God. Active obedience. It's beautiful. And he also knows. He has the whole story. He knows that in just a couple days, a perfect lamb without blemish is going to be sacrificed. And that blood is going to cover over sinful people that need to be rescued and saved and redeemed. And so he wants to celebrate with his disciples. He wants to remember that. To even encourage them, as we'll see next week, that, that this is actually taking place again. In a more full, in a more complete way. That that Passover lamb that was sacrificed and painted over the doorposts in Egypt was actually a precursor and, and a type that would point to a true sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice in Jesus. But he goes and he gathers to celebrate the feast. The celebration is because after the, the plague, Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. Like The, the end of the story is that God executed judgment And actually, did what he said. And those who by faith had taken hold of the promise that if they would cover over their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb, their firstborn were not killed, but every other firstborn in all of Egypt was killed. And so God turned Pharaoh's heart so that he would let the people go. Moses led them out of captivity into the wilderness to worship their God. The story of God's faithfulness goes on because not only were they freed from captivity, An enslavement, but the Israelites were given a promised land, made into a people that God continued to lead and dwell among in the tabernacle and in the temple. But what we'll see is that the promised Messiah, Jesus, is doing more than just remembering. He's remembering, and he's pointing to what is to come in the Passover week. Let's continue to look at the passage where Mark is showing how the Father, our Father, has executed the perfect plan So the Passover feast is what they're gathering for. But it's happening just like he planned. Verses 13 through 16 say this, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Does this sound at all familiar? Um, Jesus tells him to go into the city, and then some things are going to happen. If you remember, and we go back to Jesus' triumphal entry, which is in chapter eleven of Mark, Jesus had sent him into the temple and told, or sent him into Jerusalem and told him exactly what they would find as far as a a, a colt. Right, Mark 11, 2 and three. It says he said to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it." If anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And then they went and they found it exactly like he said. There's conspiracy theories that Jesus already like had people inside setting all this stuff up. Okay. I think there's just too many records of Jesus knowing what's going on for us to say, yeah, he's got all these insiders. No, this is is the Son of God. The one who, because he is both perfect deity and fully human, knows the will of the Father and is in such communion with the Father and the Spirit that he knows what's going to happen. And so he sends them. He knows the goal and the plans of God and he knows the details. And so he sends his disciples and he tells them exactly what to look for. None of this story surprises him. We've got to remember that. Even as we get to the point where, where he's betrayed and all of the disciples leave him and he's left alone, that is not a surprise to Jesus. He knows that he is going to go and suffer. Mark 10, 45, he says that he's, he's going to, he, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he knows that he's going to have to do it alone. He knows that despite the cultural norms of the day, that uh, normally aside carrying water to, to the women... They're going to go and they're going to find a man carrying water. That's, that's different. That's not by chance. And so he tells the disciples, you're going to go and you're going to find a man carrying water. And he knows that there's going to be room in the house. And, and some of that would feel circumstantial because at Passover time, if you lived in Jerusalem, you were supposed to create space for the pilgrim and the sojourner. But this is really late, like, Normally you kind of make some arrangements ahead of time. This is, this is right before Passover. And so the expectation is that while that might be the cultural norm, I don't know where we're going to find space. And yet all of these things happen just as Jesus said. He knows that there will be room at the house. He knows that, in, uh, that, there's, that there's going to be room even as the, the city fills up for this huge Passover celebration. The disciples find everything just as Jesus told them. Why? Because this is the plan of God. The magnitude of what is about to take place is so important that God is is involved in the details. When you look at the Old Testament and you look at Numbers and Leviticus... Is there any question that God is involved in the details? When you look at how the sacrifices are supposed to be played out, what days are supposed to happen on, what kind of animal, all of these things. like God is involved in the details, and it's the details that He cares about. Not because He's just a meticulous God, but because He cares about holiness, he cares about us as a people, and he wants us to walk in everything that he has for us. And if he cared about those details, don't you think that he would care about the details of his son going to the cross? He would, and he does. And so Jesus knows what's going to happen and take place. I love what Daniel Aiken says about this passage. He says, the two disciples did as they were instructed. They also would have prepared the Passover lamb that symbolized their deliverance from slavery and redemption out of Egypt. Little did they know that an even greater Passover was unfolding as Jesus prepared himself to be sacrificed as our Passover lamb. John the Baptist had declared that here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is indeed the Passover lamb, and he is in complete control of the events leading to his death. The cross did not catch him off guard. No, it was a divine appointment scheduled, as Peter would write, before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew down to the last detail what was happening, and he joyfully embraced it. Such confidence in God's will should inspire us to trust him, even when the road of life may be difficult, painful, even deadly. Our God is in control. I think that's something that we can take from this passage. God is sovereign and in control down to who's carrying the water and what house he enters into, and will there be enough space for that? He cares. He's prepared a way for us to walk in. I love Thomas Terry. He, uh, he's a preacher, but he's also uh, a lyricist, part of Beautiful Eulogy, And he he does a lot of spoken word, and one of the ones he he talks about is not plan B. This is plan A. It's not a reaction to our sin. He he knew this was coming, and from the very beginning, from the foundation of the earth, he said, I will make a way. I will save and rescue a people who don't deserve it, but I will rescue them for my glory. This is not plan B. This is the gospel plan from the foundation of the world. God is executing His perfect, righteous, holy, loving plan to redeem and rescue a wayward and sinful people to Himself. You want to see how wayward and sinful they are? Well, let's keep reading. Seventeen. And when it came, when it was evening, He came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, "Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me, one who is eating with Me." They began to be sorrowful and say to Him, one after another, "Is it I?" He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You have this table where they're gathering to eat. And as we see the table set is is both a a literal table being set and a figurative table being set where the, the lamb is there on the table and the lamb is sitting at the table with them Jesus enters into an incredibly intimate moment with his disciples there's great significance in sharing a meal together that's why both of our institutional gatherings at CAVE we share a meal we say, well, we don't eat on Sunday mornings but well, we do we share the Lord's supper together we take of the communion and sit around, come to the table together, and we receive what God has provided for us. There's an intimacy there. Our unity is because of what Christ has done. And so we gather each day, each Sunday, around the table. And at community group, we gather at the dinner table, Sometimes actually at the table and sometimes just kind of everywhere. Coffee tables or whatever it is. But we gather together and we share a meal together because there's an intimacy that we have that says God has provided for us. And we've modeled that after the Acts 2.42 where you see that the community was gathering together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking bread and prayers. That's our hope is that we would be a people that gather together, that, that share all things the greatest thing that we share is Jesus. And so we, there's a significance in sharing a meal together. That was very significant in Jesus' time. The intimacy of a shared meal shows that we are the family of God together, united in Jesus. And in Jesus' day, the sharing of a meal was, was an intimate moment. Walter Wessel in the expositor's Bible commentary says this to betray a friend after eating a meal with him was and still is regarded as the worst kind of treachery in the Middle East. Jesus in his accusal of Judas references the Psalm. Like you see that it says, The one who would betray me, one who is eating with me. Psalm forty one nine says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate my bre- who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus exposes Judas in this moment. But He doesn't do it outright. He doesn't say it's Judas. He begins to narrow it down so that each of the disciples is thinking, is it, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Because what they're realizing is that I, I don't know. I know I'm sinful. Like If I've learned anything from the teaching of Jesus, is that it's that there's a sin inside of all of us that needs to be reconciled and redeemed. And Jesus is exposing the seriousness of that sin. And he does it by saying that at the end, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Because of sin, it would be better if we had not been born than to be born and be sinful. That's true. And so we need a Savior to redeem and to save us from that sin. I think as we begin to see here, and, and you can even um, look at the other gospel accounts, that all of this is happening through Judas. Judas is betraying Jesus. And so we would ask the question well, if God is sovereign, why would he allow that to happen? Why would he do that? Why would. No, Judas still is responsible for his actions. While God uses it, He does not relieve Judas of the responsibility of what he's doing. Judas is sinning against God. He's betraying the one that he would have confessed and and said that he loved. The one who he had done ministry work in the name of, and yet still had not known. Still had not worshipped. Still had not seen as the one who would redeem and save Him because He had an expectation of a Messiah who would come and overthrow Rome, who would establish a kingdom that He would get to flourish in in a very real way. And Jesus is talking about a different kingdom. Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom. And so Judas planned and plotted to betray Him I want to go back. Verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another is it I? Listen, while in this moment it's not them. They are not the ones that are betraying Jesus. It is Judas. What we're going to find out and and this is another way that Mark writes. He he puts this story and then he talks about the Lord's Supper and then he finishes with another story of how the disciples are, are praying with Jesus and eventually they all fall asleep. Like... There's this this reality that while maybe it's not them betraying Jesus in this moment, they are going to let Jesus down. They're going to run in fear. Peter's going to say, I didn't even know the guy. So all of them stand condemned under this reality that is it I? Yes, it is I. Like yes, we have all betrayed Jesus. We all have sinned. We all do not love Him fully and completely. And so we all stand under that, to a degree. So what's the difference then? The difference is that Jesus says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You hear the story of Peter denying Jesus? What's the better story? The better story is Jesus comes back to Peter and he says, listen, if you love me, feed my sheep. He does it three times to just completely restore and say, listen, you come to me in repentance and brokenness and I've restored you and I've paid the debt that you owed. What is the debt that he owed? The debt is the debt that Jesus has paid. The blood of the lamb poured out for us. I want to close our time with just reading a couple of these passages that point clearly to Jesus as the Passover lamb, the one who has paid for you and I, who, who would say, is it I? And he would say, yes, and I've loved you, and I've poured myself out for you. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, this is Old Testament Scripture, pointing to the Messiah who would come, the suffering servant. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Anguish of his soul out of the anguish of his soul, is in verse 11. And I just think like the anguish, the the reality, if we've seen anything about Jesus, is that he's very human. And so in the moment of his betrayal by one who has confessed love and adoration for him and yet has in his heart sought a different Savior, there's got to be great anguish in Jesus' soul as he confronts Judas and sees the brokenness of sin. But we have the promise of a of a Savior who would be crushed, who would be poured out, who would be uh, broken as the righteous one, my servant, and he would make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Hebrews 9, the author's talking about the, the better sacrifice, the better lamb. He says this but in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. As they celebrate the Passover, they're remembering how they come to God, and it was through sacrifices, and it was through perfect animals being slain, and the blood being poured out, so that they could enter into the holy God's presence. But that was not actually making them holy. It was pointing to one who would come and make them holy. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better lamb. We have the perfect lamb who has poured out his life for us. And he did it willingly. It wasn't a surprise to him. This is the perfect plan of God. How do we know he does it willingly? He says it himself in John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus himself says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Judas didn't take Jesus' life. The high priests who then take him to Pilate, they don't take his life. Pilate himself and the Roman guards that are nailing him to the cross are not taking Jesus' life. He is laying it down. And for you and for me today, that's the best news that we're ever going to hear. That the perfect Lamb would come and lay down His life for you and I. Because we need it. We stand under the wrath of God, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks as Jesus drinks the cup of the wrath of God on our behalf. As sinners, you and I deserve to be separated from a holy God. We, can't, we don't have any ground to stand on before a holy God. And yet, Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, has accredited to, accredited to us his righteousness through the blood of a, that was poured out for us. And so, today, if we are in Christ, we stand before a holy God, redeemed, cleansed, perfect. And we know this because not only did he die and pour out his life, but he rose again proving that he has victory over sin and death. And that's the God that we say, man, look at Jesus. He's the one who's done this for me. We can say, is it I? Yeah, it's I. I. I forgot this week and I went and chased after lesser things. And yet, Lord, you have poured out your blood for me. And so I stand not condemned as I should be. But I stand righteous before you. So this morning as we look at the Lamb, what is our response? What does that mean for our lives? Like we, can, we can say all this and we can just let it, let it stand there on its own two feet. This is Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, going to the cross, knowing that His friends are going to betray Him, that they're going to let Him down. That even the ones that have spent the most time with Him and, and know Him as intimately as you can possibly know someone, one of them sells Him out for 30 pieces of silver and the other ones are all going to be gone when it gets hard. That Jesus went to the cross for you and for me and for them. Today we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to recognize that, yeah, it's, it's I. I'm, I'm the one. God, I, I've, I've left you for lesser things this week, today, this morning. Like I, I let my cares and my concerns and the things that, that should not have any sway in my life because you are great and mighty, I've let them control the way that I would respond and behave. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy for just forgetting, God. I've forgotten today who you are. Thank you for reminding me. I repent of chasing after those things, and I want to run to you. I want to worship you. I want to take this vial that I have of worship, and I want to pour it over you. And I want to love you with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want to love my neighbor as myself out of that love for you. So, God, have mercy. Today, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, or maybe the thousandth time, and somehow it's striking a chord, and you're like, man. The good news is it's, it's here. It's available for you today. The Lord has poured out his blood so that you could walk in the righteousness that he has purchased for you. If that's you, man, let's, let's pray. Let's, let's gather together. Let's encourage one another. Let's, let's lay hold of the things that God has for us today. And one of the things that he has for us is his righteousness. A righteousness that we did not earn. But has been purchased for us on the cross in repentance, we also need to walk in belief. I need to believe it. Like, that's true. And so today, if I'm in Christ, I stand before a holy God, not condemned, but called perfect, called son, called daughter, because of the work of Jesus. And so I'm never going to leave that place. I'm not going to say, okay, thank you, Jesus, for setting my feet here, and now I need to do these other things. No, I'm going to continue to stand in dependence and faith and trust in a holy God in a perfect work of the Savior. And I'm going to forget. And then I'm going to repent. I'm going to believe. And I'm going to walk in righteousness and life. Today, the call is to behold the Lamb. To see Him. For all that He is. For all that He's done. Not just in a, in a general uh, reconciling work for all the world, but as a specific and intimate work that He's done for you, for me. Both those things are equally true. We have to see them. And as we see it as a personal thing, it changes your life radically. We can no longer live for ourselves. We've been purchased. We've been bought with a price. The blood that He poured out was precious. And so we live For His glory. So today I pray that we would behold the Lamb. That we would see Him. That we would walk in repentance and belief. And that we would give much glory to Jesus. Lord we thank You. God we thank You for the gift of grace. Lord that we couldn't bring anything to the table. That would give us merit or warrant before a holy God. But Jesus did. He walked perfect righteousness on our behalf. He bore the the punishment for sin that was due us. He atoned for our sin. God, I thank you for our time in your word, Lord, and I pray that we'd grow in our understanding of what that means. And I pray that as we grow in, in an understanding and maybe even a mental capacity, Lord, that that would... Spur us into a heart adoration. That it would never just stay this heady thing, but it would express itself in this beautiful heart thing that then makes our lives be poured out as an offering to you, Lord, as, a, as worship to you. Yeah, we, we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of grace and we acknowledge that you have given us everything that we need. And your blood poured out for us, your grace that redeems and reconciles us, your spirit that fills us to walk in the righteousness of Christ. God, may we live for you. May we speak your words as we've prayed in our prayer of confession. Lord, would you fill our mouths with your words. So that others would know, others would see, others would behold Jesus and say, man, that that Jesus, that's the one I want. I want to know him and I want to love him. Do that work in us today, in Jesus' name. Amen.